This, this, this is straight, straight, straight out of Crumpton with your host, Greg Crumpton. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Straight Out of Crumpton. I'm Tyler Kern, joined as always by the man for whom this podcast is named. It's Mr. Greg Crumpton. Greg, how are you today, sir? Man, I'm doing great. It's uh, good to catch up with you. I know we're we're an hour later than normally because I had to do a bunch of juggling around, and that that almost screwed our guest up. But she she pulled through for us. So um, really good, man. We're we're having a beautiful fall here. Uh, it's just been great weather and, and just a great time of year. I've uh, been doing some really good reading, uh, talked to some interesting people, and uh, so doubly excited for this morning. So here we here we go, or afternoon, sorry. Yeah, well, there we, there we go. Well, speaking of good reading, good books, let's introduce our guest today. Her name is Dr. Ruth Gotian. She is the Chief Learning Officer in Anesthesiology and Assistant Professor of Education in Anesthesiology. But more importantly today, She's the author of the book, The Success Factor, and that's where we're going to focus a lot of our conversation. So, Dr. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Yeah, it, it was really uh, a blast having you here because uh, going back months ago when I got the book and I read the book, and, and we were talking a little bit before Tyler hit record, but it just really hit me in a, in a great place. You know, there's so many cool stories and, and the interweaving of of the success of these folks and how they became high achievers, you know, and tracing back to their early roots. I mean, it was just a really fun book to read and uh, has certainly, uh, you know, every time I, well, I say every time, it seems like every time I click on the web, there's your face with someone new holding your book. So congratulations on it. And uh, thank you for doing it because it's certainly been a joy for me. Thank you. It's definitely been a labor of love, so much so that um, at the age of 43, I've been so enamored by success and why some people have it and how the rest of us mere mortals can get it, that at that age, while working full time, I decided to go back to school and get my doctorate. And I took a deep dive to study these extreme high achievers. And ultimately, years later, that led to the book, The Success Factor. Well, it I'm enamored by it. Uh, just the whole process. I, I love books. I'm, I've kind of become a, a book geek in my older years. Um, and because I, I didn't read a lot as a young person, you know, I was, I was working and I read technical stuff, but I didn't read for the sake of learning. I read for the sake of the job. But um, now when I get a book and, you know, I think about the work that is required on the front end, the research, the the brain power, you know, I mean, it takes a lot just to sit there and put your thoughts together in, in rough, you know, form or rough draft, let alone a finished product. So really intrigued about that. And and even probably more so of how you you wove your your web into getting these great stories, to, you know, onto, onto the page. So can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, um, I guess really how the book came to you and why and how you wound up with this group of characters you did. And, and how did my contact list now include Nobel prize winners and 
NBA <laughs> champions and astronauts. <laughs> exactly. And here, because it, it didn't start out that way. You're talking to a world famous author, you know, I mean, talk about a, a boost in our world. So. Right. <laughs> um, well, I've always been um, enamored by very successful people. And I always thought you needed to be born into the right family and have the right pedigree and go to the right schools. But I was working in this program where I was running what's called a combined MD-PhD program. My students were getting the two degrees in seven to eight years. It was the most competitive program to get into. They were going to become physician scientists. Three and a half percent acceptance rate. You had a better chance of getting into Stanford than you did this program. And yet people were leaving midway through. And everyone was focused on those who were leaving and how do we get them to stay very similar to the issues we're facing now in the workplace. And for 20 years, we were discussing the retention issue, what we call the leaky pipeline. And I've always, always been interested in those who are at the other end of the spectrum, those people who did such incredible work. And I kept wondering, what if we can make more of those people? Wouldn't their work more than make up for anybody who's leaving? And that's why I went back to school. And because of where I worked, I knew a few Nobel Prize winners and I, f I knew other people who knew Nobel Prize winners and asked them for introductions. And when I got my doctorate, I studied the most successful physician scientists of our generation. And I realized that they all had these four mindsets in common. And then later, I was curious if what I found with those people the same would be true in other extreme high achievers. And that's where the Olympians and the astronauts and NBA champions um, came into play. But how did I meet all of them? That's 95% introductions to people from my network because I didn't know all these people. But I needed to get to one Olympian. I needed to get to one astronaut. I needed to get to one CEO and if they trusted my work, because people like to work with those who they know, like, and trust, mm. and if they trusted me enough, then they would make introductions to other people who I should know. And it just snowballed from there. You know, that, that trust word, we, we seem to have uh, bubble up in our conversations here all the time, because it's so true. And because we're, you know, we're not a, a Dr. Phil type show, but we are a show that talks about people and the human spirit loves to deal with people they trust because there's just a whole lot of ease that comes after that trust is established or confirmed or whatever word you want to add to it. So I'm not surprised to hear it. Uh, but what is interesting uh, th that I find interesting about your willingness and your 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 passion to go is to go ask these questions you know go ask for the introduction go ask for the interview um i've i've done a, a few little things like that and it's kind of unsettling you know when you're like walking up to the you know hey can i you know they don't know what the intent is or or the a degree of passion behind your ask is and then to get it, you know, get the, uh, the the acceptance. And then it really seems to really build its own momentum. You know, you get one 
and then that trust is transferred. And so that's really interesting as well. It really does. But I think before you ever ask for anything, you have to offer something. Because if when you're meeting someone, you're making it a transactional conversation, I don't want that. That feels slimy. But when you're able to offer something instead, that is that is much more helpful. And trust me, trust me, there is always something that you can offer. And I will give you two examples. I was at a conference and I heard this panel and there happened to be an astronaut on that panel. After the panel was over, I went up and I introduced myself. And then the first thing is I never talk about work because they're talking about work all the time. Why would they want to talk about work with me? So we quickly (laughs) pivoted to something else and we quickly pivoted to family. And he was telling me, um, so I'm a, uh, an alumna of Columbia and he told me his son is studying at Columbia. And I said, Oh, what is he studying? And he told me, And then he told me what his son wants to do. And the astronaut said, I don't know anything about that field. I don't know how to advise him. And I said, oh, I have a colleague who's doing research in exactly that field. Would you like me to put the two of them in contact with each other? And that's what I did. And that's how I was introduced and became friendly with that astronaut. Now, another thing that happened is... On the, um, I had many book launch parties, but there was one official one for all the people who are in the book, The Success Factor, because while I knew all of them, they didn't know each other. Hmm. And this was really a celebration of them. And right before the launch, one of the astronauts texted me and he said, oh, will Dr. Fauci be there? Because Dr. Fauci is one of the people who I interviewed. And I said, no, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This is right when Omicron hit. I said, I think he's a little busy. I don't think he's going to make it tonight. I said, oh, but this Nobel Prize winner will be there. And he said, oh, Nobel Prize winner. Now that's a high achiever. And I said, you're an astronaut. You went in a tin can to space. (laughs) If you're not a high achiever, what does that say about the rest of us? And I quickly realized that everyone who he knows is an astronaut. So that's no big deal to him. That is the norm. That is the bar. And I told this story to the Nobel Prize winner, and he said, oh, that's really interesting. And I told him my reflection on it. He said, I know so many Nobel Prize winners. It's not a big deal. I see them all the time. We get together. He said, but I've never met an astronaut. Mm. I said, oh, I can fix this. (laughs) So I was able to make that introduction for the two of them. And I think they're actually going to collaborate on a project at some point. But that's little old me making an introduction to, you know, these in three, two different instances. And I think there's always something that you can offer to somebody else, but you need to find what that is before you ever ask for anything. That That's, uh, I never thought about that, but, you know, it's so true because you see people hanging out with people that they're comfortable with or that they have shared experiences with or whatever, Pro athletes are the same way. You know, I used to live in a building where a pro football player lived. And guess who came to see him? Other pro football players. Novel idea. But that that makes sense, you know, when we think about it, you know, who who is in our bubble. And uh, so piercing outside that bubble and that cross-pollination, I could see where that would be a huge uh, 
you know, a gift for someone. And on a much smaller scale, I try to do that. My One of my things is dot connector. You know, I'm always trying to figure out, okay, who do I know that needs a little something and who need, who has a little something? And I, 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 you know, trying to make a little quickie intro and it's fun to watch that develop. You know, I don't have to be involved in it, but you know, three years later, you're with those two people and they go, how in the world did we meet? And then they look at you and go, you did it, you sucker. You know, so <laughs> I, I, just, yeah. I, I enjoy that piece. You know, it's fun. Those introductions and creating those opportunities for people is what is so critical. Um, but it's really about getting people to know, like, and trust you. And the way to do that is to always offer something. And if I can offer something to a Nobel Prize winner and an astronaut, then anyone can offer anything to someone else to make their day just a little bit better. Well, I think you're proving that, uh, doctor, by being here. You know, you don't owe us anything, certainly. And you were gracious enough to accept the, the invitation. And but what this does is to, for us, you know, the three of us, it offers up a whole new set of people that we get to interact with in some form or fashion, you know. So really, uh it's just, it's just neat to hear. So we talked about a couple of the folks in the book, and we had Joe Jacoby uh, join us after, um, obviously, I read the book, but we've kept the conversation going. Um, I recently, uh, I was texting with him about uh, going down the river. My family took a whitewater rafting trip, and you know, while I was floating down the river, I'm thinking about Joe, and I never would have done that had I not read your book, uh, obviously. But some of the things he talked about in the book, and, and subsequently has has shared about you know taking life all on its terms and using the river, uh, you know, as a, a semblance of life itself. Like you just have to kind of go with the current, and you can't fight the current, and it's just so cool when you when when you get to learn from people like him, and then you you look at it removed from that setting, and go, oh, that's what that's what Joe was talking about. I get it. Yeah. So Joe's a great guy, and I encourage all your listeners to go check out his book Slalom. Um, it, what's really interesting about Joe Jacoby, you're right, is is one of the Olympic champions in my book. Is that he lives in Barcelona, mm-hmm. overlooking the river where he won his gold medal. Right. Is that not incredible? That's just, that's just badass is what that is. (laughs) You know, for lack of a better way of saying that, you know, they, you always return to the scene of the crime. And in his, in his case, you know, he gets to relive that by walking through the store, you know, he gets to see. And it's, he immersed himself in the culture and, you know, we're obviously still in touch. And every time he texts me, he says, Bon dia, Ruth. And I say, yeah. Oh, bon dia, Joe. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Yeah. Very cool. So what, you know, I know it's hard to like choose favorites because you already had to go through all of that to develop the book. You know, you had to carve it and parse it down. I'm sure. Rather than choose a favorite, what, what are, what, story when you think about it in the book really pops to your what's what's your go-to thought of the book i have so many but i'll i I can share some of my favorite stories well i know it's not a fair question because 
you know, it's just like I read the book and then I look at it through my perspective. You wrote the book, so you have your own. I'm just curious of of how those two are are juxtaposed. Yeah. And, you know, every time someone tells me, oh, Ruth, I read your book. I loved your book. And I always ask them, which was your favorite story? And everyone has a different story that they love. Um, One of mine is this story of when people write you off, why you shouldn't write yourself off. And it's the story of Dr. Peggy Whitson. Dr. Peggy Whitson is an astronaut. She's a biochemist. And I said, well, how'd you become a biochemist? And she said she had all these um, women in her life who were science teachers and college professors who kept pushing her to try these new things and introduced her to these new worlds. And she applied. She was working at NASA and she applied to be an astronaut. And like most of the astronauts who I interviewed, she was actually rejected on her first attempt. So she reapplied and she was rejected and she reapplied again and she was rejected and she reapplied again, was rejected. And this went on for 10 years. Now, would you apply for something and get rejected for 10 years and keep applying? But she said, I am learning. I'm still working at NASA. I'm taking all of these lessons and I'm learning it and I'm putting it forth as I reapply. Ultimately, she was accepted as an astronaut, which is a good thing because she ultimately became um, the first female commander of the International Space Station, a role she's held twice. Wow. She spent more days in space than any American astronaut of any gender. And Dr. Peggy Whitson, who was rejected for 10 years, ultimately became NASA's chief astronaut. So every time I think about rejection and giving up, I think of the Dr. Peggy Whitson story. And that is the ultimate motivator. I mean, to your point, how that's the ultimate resilience test. You know, yeah. how, how many times do you get knocked down and get back up? And feel good yeah. enough about it to go do it again. And uh, I think Einstein had a quote about that, wasn't it? You kept doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. <laughs> That's awesome. Right. And, you know, one of the things that came up, and this was really a common thread with all of them, all of the lessons that I share in the success factor are common lessons between the astronauts and Nobel Prize winners and all these people. But one of them was that they were okay with failure. They didn't love it. I mean, who loves it? But they were okay with it because they looked for the lesson in it. And ultimately, they feared not trying more than they feared failing. And I think that's a really important lesson because so many of us are so afraid of failing that we don't even try. We never get out of the starting blocks. But what's the worst that would happen, right? As one of my friends who's now a colonel in the army, he said to me, nobody died. That's the worst that could happen. Somebody dies. But if nobody dies, what's the worst that'll happen? You'll dust yourself off and you'll try again. And I think that's a great lesson. Fear not trying more than you fear failing. In fact, every time I have the privilege of signing copies of the success factor, I always put that quote, fear not trying more than you fear failing. Do you really? I do. I like that. You know, that, um, so I think about 10 consecutive efforts and, uh, so I think about my sister who went to, uh, went to college out of high school, did the whole thing, took her 20 years to get her doctorate. 
but she got it, you know, because, wow. you know, marriage, <laughs> divorce, uh, marriage, uh, adoption of a Romanian boy, birth of two little girls, twin girls, wow, uh, all of that. And then she graduates. So, you know, it's, it's just a, a story of getting back in the fight, you know, of, of getting back up on the horse or whatever I could, or, or uh, saying you want to use, but it's, it's so true. You, you know, you, you don't know until you go is, is a quote I use to my wife, you know, like we got to go find out. Cause if we don't, you know, we'll never know. Um, well, I think the key is you have to find what you are, what we call intrinsically motivated to do. So if you're doing it because you want the, award, reward, promotion, bonus, medal. Those are what we call extrinsic motivators. That's when other people are judging us. And I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to sustain motivation if I'm always doing it for somebody else. Hmm. But when it comes from within, you would do it for free if you could. It's the reason you wake up in the morning. It's the reason you can't quiet your mind at night. That's what we call intrinsic motivation. You are doing it for yourself. And when you are able to tap into your intrinsic motivation, no one and nothing will stop you from achieving your goal. And that's what worked for Dr. Peggy Whitson. And that's what worked for every single one of the extreme high achievers in the book. Well, it also appears to me that it works for the three of us on this call because <laughs> you think about it, we're all doing what we want to be doing. You know, I know Tyler well enough to know he's, he's very driven to do what he does and he's good at it. I'm doing this not because I make a lot of money off this podcast, but because it connects me with people and it, it allows me the opportunity to learn more so that I can go try to figure out how to help somebody. You're doing this obviously because you're gracious, but secondly, because you wrote a book that you were compelled to write. And this is one more way that we get to celebrate it. And, you know, so I think that it really comes down to this little bitty microcosm of, of, of this three person group all the way out to how big do you want to blow it up? So it's really cool right. to think about, um, but I love that. That's right. All right. You, um, man, my brain's like, you know, spinning <laughs> again. Because you said words that drive me nuts, like you can't quiet your mind at night because, you know, I'm, I'm the psycho with the, the pen beside the bed writing stuff down so I can go to sleep. I'm um, a fellow psycho then. Huh? <laughs> I'm a fellow You're, psycho then. Okay. Well, good. Well, it's good, to, good to meet you. When you interviewed your, your guests, uh, I'll call them your, your, your subjects for the book. Mm-hmm. How did how did the conversation start? Like when you when you mm-hmm. were when you had made the connection and everyone had agreed to to you know participate in the conversation to see if there's a story there. How did that? How did you uh, like convey your message to them of what you were trying to do? Like how how did you get them to immerse into your thought of I'm doing this because I want to do blank. What was their part? Why did they want to do it? Well, remember, I'm coming as a social scientist. I'm not coming as a Yenta who, you know, just wants to talk to these extreme high achievers. <laughs> and I told them I really am not interested in talking about 
anything I can Google about you because then we don't really need to have this conversation. I am much more interested in the path, the journey that you had to take in order to get there. That to me is much more interesting. And nobody really asked them about that. They all want to know what it's like to be the greatest of all time, what it's like to get the medal, what it's like to be CEO of the year. Nobody asked them about what they had to sacrifice, what they had to do, what time of the day did they have to wake up, who helped them to get there. And I do qualitative research, which means I have to ask these deep reflective questions, not these yes, no questions. So I didn't ask them, who were your mentors, right? I had to get it out of them that they even had mentors to see. And they all did, for example, but I didn't, I couldn't ask it straight out, right? Because that would be leading. So I had to ask it in, in a very different way. And they really wanted to just share their story. They were really quite interested in that. And what happened was after I got a few of them and they started referring me to other people, it just snowballed from there because I had that trust factor. And along the way, some of the things I did, um, I write for Forbes and Psychology Today, and I started sharing bits of the stories with readers about some of these people. So you mentioned Joe Jacoby. Before the book ever came out, I wrote a Forbes article about him. So I could use that as collateral to show people, look, this is how I write your story, right? And I did that with Scott Hamilton, the figure skater, and Apollo Ono, the speed skater. Everyone's got a story, right? Everyone has a story and no one wants to hear the same story they've heard a million times. But understanding the journey, people can actually relate to that. People can relate to the journey more than they can to the metal. You know, that that's so true, A. And I love the approach, the non-Google comments and questions. Like, duh. But it's, you know, I, it didn't click until you said it for me. Um, but one thing that I took away was the the level of humility that that these folks shared through their story, um, whether implied or imparted. And then the other part was how they stored their metals, you know, like in a sock drawer. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. I yes. mean, it was just intriguing of, of something that we all as mortal people who don't collect gold medals would think would be, voila, you know, on top of the fireplace mantle. Yeah. They had in a sock drawer because it was one accomplishment. It wasn't the accomplishment. That's exactly right. So every time I would interview um, any of these people who got medals, let's say the Olympic champions, I would always ask to see their medals, right? Because every Olympics is different. And it was fascinating to me that they didn't have it on display. Only two of them had it on display. Everyone else, it was on the shelf. It was in a box under the bed. It's in the nightstand. Um, Scott Hamilton, the Olympic gold medal figure skater, gave them all away to the Figure Skating Hall of Fame. Uh, Apollo Ono, the most decorated winter Olympian, had it in a brown paper bag in his sock drawer. Now, if I won a medal, I might be wearing it to the supermarket. Right? <laughs> right? That's because I, I got a gold medal, right? But they didn't. And I thought that was very odd. And I said, I don't understand. Why is it not on display? And they said, it was never about the medal. That's a chapter in my life. It's not the entire story. 
And that's why they didn't crumble when they won their medals at such a young age Hmm. and retired in their 20s, because there was always another goal after that. And that medal is just a symbol of their resilience and their hard work. It's not a symbol of who they are. And that is, I think, a very big difference. And that's a lesson that we can all learn. We should never account, we should never think of our worth based on our achievements. Well said. You know, when you think about it in, a, in that perspective, uh, it kind of goes back to who's in your circle. Yeah. We don't, as I don't certainly interact with, um, I, I don't interact with a lot of Olympic champions, you know, just in my day to day, unless they're in air conditioning <laughs> field. Um, but, it, you know, when, when we think about your, your peers and you think about the accomplishments of your peers, well, a gold medal is, is something different for us because we're not exposed yeah. to it. We never thought about it. We weren't six years old. Uh, you know, doing workouts at Back 3 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> to get there. Um, yeah. But that that's a really unique perspective to take on that is not letting an accomplishment be it, you know, always yeah. be striving for the, the ultimate goal uh, of the intrinsic nature. And I do remember reading that in the book um, and thinking through that, like, how many people are stuck in jobs or stuck in something that they're doing because they don't get to do what they really want or even a different word should be doing based on their natural abilities. You know, it's like when, when you read research on how many people actually work in the field that they were educated in, it's so darn small, you know, um, I just I always find that interesting of how how we wind up where we wind up, you know, in in, in life, and and that whole piece just kind of stirs together in my brain. So I'll, that's one more thing I'll have to figure out tonight before I go to sleep. <laughs> well, remember, you can be really good at something and not enjoy it. Yeah. My first two degrees are in business, and I worked in finance and international banking when I finished grad school, and I was good at it. I was really good at it. But I was shuffling my feet every day as I was going to work. You had to peel me out of bed. I really just did not enjoy it. And I switched. I switched fields. And I have been so much happier since then. And you know what? What we studied at 18 is not what we may want to do when we're 30 or 40 or 50. And it's okay to shift. I went back to school at 43 and shifted again. Right? I wrote my my first book. Um, which came out when I was 50. So these are all things that we can do and we can transition. And what we have learned during the pandemic is that our passions change over time. And that's okay. They actually change every time we have a transition in our life, a new job, a new partner, a new child, a new home, a pandemic. So it's very important to reevaluate what our passions are. And I talk about this quite a bit in the book. It's actually a a worksheet that I offer in the book, um, which really guides you through so you can differentiate between what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, what you do for free if you could. And in fact, if your listeners want to download their own passion audit, um, they can just go right to my website and get it at ruthgotian.com slash passion audit. Nice. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm I'm sure that uh, at least one of us will be doing that. 
you know, um, talking about what people enjoy doing and what they're good at. Uh, I just read a book last week on the six uh, principles of leadership. And it was the, it, it, one of the books written by, uh, I forget the guy's name, Leone or Leo Coney on, you know, it's written in a fable way. Um, and then he backs it up with data at the end. But it's really intriguing of how uh, in the story, you know, they go through this this exercise of figuring out who needs to be doing what at the company as opposed to who does what at the company. Uh, because to your point, you know, you were good at banking, but it was something that you didn't enjoy. So how much better would it be for somebody, you know, to be able to switch seats with you? And he was talking about that on a team basis. Like, how do you how do you rearrange the chairs to get people in their most happy slash most productive spot? So that totally makes sense to me the way you, you just said that. So Tyler, where are you at in, in this uh, realm? What, what's, what's, <laughs> you, you look like you have that, I'm about to say something, look on your face. Well, I am curious um, about how you define success in the book because that looks different for different people depending on what their goals are and, and that sort of thing. Um, how do you define success and, and when it looks different for somebody um, than, you know, it does for an astronaut or an Olympian, you know, uh, how do you apply the same principles? Well, that's actually the first two parts of my research was to define success because we don't have a national definition of success. Right. So that was the earliest part of my research was actually to define it. And I wrote several academic papers about this, that what I have learned is that the definition changes based on who you ask. Hmm. And it, the definition changes based on gender and based on rank, which causes a whole slew of challenges. But the definition that I used, which I distilled from the research, was that the people had to meet three metrics. They had to achieve something that causes us to change the way we do things, think about things, or process things, right? So it's not about a metal. It's about changing, it's creating a paradigm shift. The second is, as they rise through the ranks, they are pulling other people up with them. So they understand that a light on someone else does not detract from the light on them. And last but not least, when they achieve the pinnacle of their success, they are mentoring the next generation and they are doing it either one-on-one -on -one or in a one-to-many model because they want to pay it forward in some way. So notice I never said you need to win the Nobel Prize. I never said you need to be a millionaire or billionaire. I never said you need to get some sort of medal. I never said you need to be an influencer. It's about creating a paradigm shift raising others as you're rising and then paying it forward. Well, those, those last two, um, I get, you know, that's normal thought process for me when I look at successful people and I think, are they doing these things? The first one though, I'd never thought through um, like that, like making a change in their, their trajectory, so to speak. Um, but it makes sense because that's when you do have the ability to do the other things a little more substantially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what made it so fun and so interesting. And that's why I was not interested in what is Googleable about these people. 
And I was much more curious about the path to get there. So when I interviewed nine-time NBA champion Steve Kerr, what did it take? What did it take to get there? And what was it like to transition from being a player to a coach? Or Neil Katyal, who has argued 45 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, how does he prep for that? What has he done? Right. So all of these stories, the CEO of uh, Maxine Clark, she was the founder of Build-A-Bear Workshop, something that started in her living room. How did all of these things start? What did they learn from their past? How are they paying it forward? Those stories are absolutely unbelievable. Incredible. The, the Steve Kerr thing really popped recently, too, because I forgot what if it was gun violence or what. Kerr came out with, I don't know, a few months back, he made a statement mm-hmm. uh, that to me really defined the character of the man. You know, it wasn't yeah. about basketball. It wasn't about, you know, having to to adult, you know, yeah. uh, uh, teach these youngsters how to be adults on the court. This was a, a social issue that he came out and made a very clear statement of. I thought that was really telling and kind of revalidated what the book showed about the guy. Yeah. And, you know, that really hits home for him because his father was murdered. So that was um, a, a, a point that really hit home for him. Uh, one of the things about Steve Kerr is that he creates not just great players, they're all great players, but he creates a team culture. And one of the other people who I interviewed was two-time NBA champion Zaza Pachulia, who was coached by Kerr. And Zaza played for half a dozen teams. And he said the culture on the Warriors under Kerr is unlike any other culture where he's played. And building that culture, when you have to get these groups of people together Everyone's coming from different backgrounds, different places, different abilities. That's really hard to do. And that's something that was reinforced, for example, by Dr. Peggy Whitson, that chief astronaut I was telling you about, what it's like putting these people together. Yeah, they're all astronauts. Yeah, they're all brilliant. Yeah, they all, you know, this one's a pilot and this one's an engineer. They're great individually, but getting them to work together as a team, that's the most important part. Hmm. That's, you know, I, I, I feel like I saw a talk recently where there, um, there was the chart of, uh, people that had, that are high achievers. Um, but then also, uh, on the other axis was, was high trust factor, right? That there has to be a mix of both, right? That yeah. you can, you can be the highest of achiever, but if no one trusts you, if you can't build that culture around you or be somebody that gets along and plays well with others, then, ultimately your ceiling is going to be limited, but being somebody that can achieve, but also be a trustworthy human being that, that builds culture that works together well with others. Um, that's really where you want to be and, and, you know, kind of have that, that sweet spot. And I think the, what, what you said about Steve Kerr makes a lot of sense in him building that culture with the warriors, because sure he has incredible players, but the thing that he probably learned the most throughout his career was watching Phil Jackson manage the the Chicago Bulls and how do you handle egos and how do you do all of these different things throughout the 90s? You've got Rodman, you've got Jordan, you've got Pippen and you know all of these different people managing egos and managing personalities is 
is an important thing. And that's probably, I would imagine, one of the things that he learned the most from his playing career that he's applied to now his coaching career. He really did. And, and he raised an issue for me that I hadn't considered. And he said, everyone is worried about their spot on the team. I said, what are you talking about? You've got like the best players. He said, yeah. He said, that last player wants to keep their spot on the bench, right? That's what they're fighting for. Mm-hmm. But the number one player is fighting to keep that number one spot. Getting it is hard. Keeping it is harder. I had never thought of that. So everyone is fighting for something, towards something. Mm-hmm. And just doing it together makes it that much easier. You know, two things pop for me, on, on Tyler, what you just said. I did see that similar, if not the, the same chart, the similar chart where People would rather have somebody a little less skilled, but a whole lot more valuable from a trust and a, and a do good standpoint. So you're always trying to hit that upper right quadrant. Uh, I did see that. And, uh, you said coach, uh, what's his name? Phil, um, Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson, that book he wrote five rings or whatever it was. That was a really cool book of, of how he managed that circus of uh, which is what I would call that <laughs> that they had going on with those five guys you just named, plus the whole, you know, travel schedule and craziness that that, that was going on. So Kerr got to see that probably from from a viewpoint of what worked and what didn't work. I would have to think that he would apply that now for sure. But hmm. really a a, a I mean, I don't know the gentleman at all, never met him, but he sure seems like a quality individual to me. So, uh, Ruth, when you set out to to write the book, what, what was the time span? Like, how long did this take from concept to, you know, Greg getting his <laughs> via Amazon? <laughs> um, the book is here because of my late father. Um in March of 2020, I got that phone call that nobody wants to get, which is come quick, daddy's in the hospital. And I packed a bag and flew and went straight to the hospital. And right before then, I had published a textbook on medical education and I threw it in my bag and gave it to my father in the hospital. Now, while he was there for a few weeks, I was by his bedside and I was working on my laptop. And my father kept asking me, are you getting ideas for your next book? Are you getting ideas for your next book? And I kept saying, I'm Googling how to keep you alive, right? That's what I was thinking. And this kept going on multiple times a day. He kept asking me. When he passed away in August 2020, a publisher reached out to me and said, we've been reading your work because I write for Forbes and um, Psychology Today and other journals. Um, we think you're on to something. Could we talk to you about a book? And it happened right when my father passed away. I was still in that first week of mourning. And that's when I knew that was, you know, it was almost as if it's, it's a message from my father. So the book is dedicated to his memory. And um, that was August 2020. I signed the contract in October, started writing it in November of 2020. And the book was published in uh, January 22, on the 17-month anniversary of his funeral. 
Hmm. We came full circle. Did you plan the release date or that is that just no. <laughs> that was the that was the the publisher. I had finished writing the book uh in August twenty one. Um did I get my dates right? I think so. So I had written it, it took, I don't know, eight, nine months, whatever it is. Um and because I work full time, I really only wrote it on weekends. And uh, then it was, and then from August to January, you sort of sit there waiting while I put it together. I have to tell you, it certainly worked away um, for for us as the the viewing audience and the readers. Uh, well done, and and certainly a, a not just a book to read and put on a shelf, but one to go back and look at. And you know, it can be inspirational. It can be uh, a teaching tool. There's a lot of work in there that I think crosses the boundaries of just, you know, a weekend read and put it up. It's, it's more than that. Uh, once to me, I'm sure to others as well, but, um, I appreciate that. I, 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 um, actually wrote that in the introduction that this is not a book you read and put on your shelf. This is a book you keep on your nightstand. Mm-hmm. And as you need help with any one area, you can just go back to that because I don't just share the stories of these incredible people. I actually teach people how they can implement these lessons in their own lives. And what I do is I offer a buffet of options. So I am an adult educator, so I know what works for you is not going to work for me. We take in information differently. We process information differently. So I have to offer many options. And what works for you today may not work for you in a week from now. So that's why you have all these ideas and options that you can go back to. And that's why I wrote the success factor. Well, ultimately a success for sure. And uh, just really enjoyed it. I, I know we're getting up on our time and, and uh, you know, I got, I've, I've been, you probably see me writing down all this stuff throughout the thing. I probably got, you know, three weeks worth of Googling to do myself now. <laughs> Uh, let alone my bedtime uh, note writing. So, but really, uh, just really appreciate you taking time with us, explaining a little bit behind the scenes of how these things develop. Because, you know, you go to the store or you go to Amazon or whatever and buy a book, you don't always get to hear the how and the why behind it. So I think, you know, having the ability uh, to ask you to come and and share a little bit with us just really – has been enlightening for me and I hopefully uh, for others as well. But I really appreciate your time on it. My pleasure. And I, and I did, um, uh, I did want to offer your listeners if, if they want to know how to kick off conversations with strangers and really level up their networking. So it doesn't feel awkward or slimy or they'd rather get a root canal than talk to a stranger. Um, I really knowing how to do it is an art where you don't ask for anything and that you can offer something instead and how to talk to someone about anything other than work. So I put together some of my favorite conversation starters. And if your listeners want to download them for free, they can. It's right on my website at ruthgotian.com slash conversation. Well, that in itself is a valuable tool because, uh, and Tyler, do you notice she keeps looking at me when she says slimy? I'm not sure what's going on with that. <laughs> You're reading no. too much into that, Greg. We don't know where you are on her screen. 
I hear you. I hear you. But we, the, the enlightening conversation has certainly been enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody go to that website. Uh, it's just her name spelled out dot com. Um, I've actually pulled it up this morning and, and was looking at it and she's smiling there just like she's smiling right now. So <laughs> great site to go visit, check out, buy the book, buy a book, share it. You know, that's, that's my thing lately. I can't buy one book. If I'm buying a book, I'm buying two and then I'm passing one. So I uh, encourage everybody to buy, buy a couple of books, Christmas, holidays, Hanukkah, all of the good times are coming. So get out. Uh, and fight the recession yes. and spend money. And leave an Amazon review because that helps other people find it. And go. I think the book's on sale on Amazon now too. What? Yeah, I wow. think if you buy one, you get a discount on the second. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Nice. There's your Christmas stuff. list fulfilled right there, buddy. <laughs> Dunzo. <laughs> We're ready to go. All right. We're ready to go. Uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, incredible conversation. Dr. Ruth Gautian, thank you again so much for for joining us today and uh, for being on Straight Outta Crumpton. My pleasure. Well, Greg, uh, man, incredible conversation today. I really, really enjoyed that. And um, yeah, I look forward to to more fantastic conversations like this one. But yeah, this was a lot of fun. Well, I I appreciate uh, Dr. Uh, Gautian taking time with us and coming on and sharing a little bit of insight given us a whole lot more stuff to go think about and look up and learn from and uh, just exceptional, exceptional stuff. So thank you again. Look forward to uh, keeping in touch and seeing what comes uh, next and uh, being able to learn some more. So thank you. There we go. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Straight Outta Crumpton. Again, make sure to visit ruthgotian.com uh, for more information if you'd like to uh, to reach out to see more resources there. That's the website, ruthgotian.com and uh, gregcrumpton.com. Speaking of websites, if you want to uh, stay up to date with the latest episodes of the podcast or go back and listen to previous episodes, uh, maybe uh, maybe Joe Jacoby's episode, uh, you can go back and do that on, uh, on gregcrumpton.com or search for Straight Outta Crumpton on Apple or Spotify. But for this episode, thanks again to Dr. Ruth Gautian, Greg Crumpton as well. I've been your host, Tyler Kern. We'll talk to you next time.